on this episode of TR Talk. Uh, you know, people say people don't change, and, and that's bullshit. People change all the time. Uh, I've changed my life so dramatically that my former life didn't resemble anything like how I live today. And I've had the great, you know, experience of working with so many people who have changed in such dramatic and beautiful ways. So the idea that you can't change is nonsense. So dismiss that from your consciousness. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is TR Talk, where we interview leaders in their fields to learn how millennials can fast track their personal development. This week's guest is New York Times bestselling author and ultra marathon athlete, Rich Roll. Rich also hosts his own podcast, which has over 60 million downloads. Rich is a fascinating story where at age 40, he was an out of shape lawyer struggling with alcoholism and changed his life with the drop of a hat. Now he's a super athlete named one of the 25 fittest men in the world. Really hope you enjoy this one. This week's TR Talk Fan of the Week is Matt Bonastar. Matt lives in Chicago. Right next to my brother is one of our good friends. Matt, thank you for listening and keep up the support, brother. As always, if you want to support the podcast, there's three ways you can do that. Keep on listening. We always love that. Leave us a review on iTunes. Subscribe and post us out to the nooks and crannies of the interwebs via social media platforms. Thank you all so much. Now, let's take you to sunny Southern California for this interview with Rich Roll. Thank you. Rich, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Great to be here. Now, we're really excited. Now, Rich, you're one of the 25 fittest men in the world. Now, if I would have told that to you 15 years ago, you'd probably think I was crazy. Um, how did this all come about? <laughs> well, first, yeah, I would have said that you're crazy. And I, I'd probably say you're crazy now because uh, you know, don't believe everything you read. Uh, it's fun to get mentioned in, in cool magazine pieces and stuff like that. But just for the record, I, I don't consider myself to be one of the 25 fittest people in the world. There's probably 100,000 people more fit than I, but it was nice to get a little bit of press uh, around some of the things that I've done. Well, and for the, the folks who are listening who are not familiar with your story, you're a, you know, a best-selling author. You wrote the book, Finding Ultra. You also host a incredibly popular podcast, the Rich Roll Podcast. But you know, to your point, you know, 10 years back, 15 years back, no one knew who Rich Roll was. And you know, you were actually working as a lawyer back then. So could you take us back to the genesis of where this all started? Um, you, know, you went to Stanford, you got a great job as a lawyer, and then you, you, you struggled with alcoholism. You, you left your job, you, you were overweight. So could you take us back to the genesis of, of these three major changes in your life? Yeah, sure. It's, it's been a number of, of chapters. And like I said, it, it's hardly been kind of a linear, a, a linear journey. But you know, the sort of nutshell version is that, you know, I grew up in a very uh, education focused and achievement focused household. Uh, studying was a priority. Excelling academically was a priority. And, and I struggled in school as a kid. But by the time I was in high school, I sort of figured it out. And uh, I, I was somebody who at 18 um, had a tremendous amount of potential. I got into every college I applied to, Harvard, Princeton, Stanford, you know, Amherst, you name it. Uh, ended up going to Stanford, competing on the Stanford swimming team. Uh, we won two NC2A championships when I was there. So, you know, swimming helped me get into all these colleges. 
Uh, and I competed at, a, at quite a high level in that sport. And then, you know, alcohol got introduced into my life. And, and the next, you know, 10 to 15 years was a slow decline in, uh, in, in, uh, in my lifestyle and in my potential, you know, and ultimately alcohol robbed me of everything important and aspirational in my life until I was left a shell of a human being and you know, really a broken, a broken person, alienated from friends and family, unemployable. You know, I was able to skirt through law school somehow, uh, got a good job at a good law firm and first in San Francisco and then down in Los Angeles. Uh, but it was just kind of like it was a ticking time bomb before it all exploded. And, and sure enough, it did. And, you know, I got two DUIs in a row. I was facing jail time. I had a marriage that imploded on the honeymoon. Like my life was a just a one dramatic crisis, you know, after another. Uh, and the whole house of cards really fell on top of me. And, and I ended up going to rehab uh, for 100 days, which is a long time to go to, to, go to rehab in rural Oregon sequestered away from, you know, the life that I thought was so important in Los Angeles. And that was, a not, you know, that experience really saved my life. It, it, it allowed me to reflect on my path for the very first time, because I was somebody who, you know, probably like a lot of your listeners, you know, just a very much a type A achievement person. Like I was on the track to achieve the American dream come hell or high water. And uh, and you know, I had I had premised my entire life on on getting that brass ring. You know, working harder than everybody else, and uh, you know, being the first to show up in the morning and the last to leave, and climbing the corporate ladder. And you know, implicit in all of that is that is that you know, of course, you will be financially rewarded and you will be secure, but also that you'll be happy. And my experience, you know, even after getting sober and having 10 years of sobriety and continuing to pursue this American dream was that, you know, I basically achieved it and yet was left feeling wanting. Uh, by the time I was 39, I was able to repair all the wreckage that I'd created as a result of my drinking and using. I was able to become a responsible member of society again and, you know, back on the partnership track at the law firm and had a fancy sports car and, you know, all the stuff. Uh, but I was progressively more and more depressed and disconnected from my life and and really disengaged and, and unenthusiastic about anything, despite the fact that I kind of come back from, you know, this hope to die condition as an alcoholic. I still was unable to figure out this equation to uh, to finding purpose and meaning in, in my own life. And so. My second, you know, moment of reckoning, the first being, you know, checking into rehab. The second was shortly before I turned 40 when I had this sort of collision, um, a collision between this existential crisis that I was having about my life and, and a health scare. Uh, late one night, walking up a simple flight of stairs, uh, I was winded, out of breath, tightness in my chest. I've been lugging around 50 extra pounds around the midsection. And and in that moment, it was a very frightening, specific, you know, moment in time in which I felt like I could have been on the precipice of having a heart attack. And it really scared me. And it made me realize, uh, you know, that I needed to take stock and inventory of how I was living and, and make some significant changes. And it was very much like that day I decided to go to rehab, like this, like sort of, you know, wrinkle in time, this sort of line in the sand moment, crack, you know, crack in the door where I had this, you know, impulse, this willingness to actually, you know, make some changes. And 
because you know going to rehab had changed my life so dramatically, I was able to recognize how powerful this moment was and and how you know imperative it was that I act on it you know swiftly and and decisively um, because I knew all too well if I didn't, it would just pass and I'd be back to the status quo. So that experience on the staircase was really the launch pad, the kind of you know catalyst uh, into everything that I'm doing today. Yeah, yeah. That, that, it's a helpful background. And you know, one thing I've heard you say on another podcast was that you know the the phrase you know the early bird the early bird gets the worm is both your greatest strength and it's also your greatest weakness. And you alluded to that a little bit there, where you know your drive for so many years, probably through you know your childhood and then all the way through Stanford and beyond, was. You know, I'm going to get good grades. I'm going to be the hardest worker. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And I'm going to find my way up the corporate ladder so I can have the fancy car, fancy house, etc. cetera. Um, how do you think that mentality has, or in the past, has hurt you or put you in some of those vulnerable positions? Well, I think, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a, that's a very interesting question. I mean, it is true. You know, my edict was always, you know, the early bird gets the worm and that has served me and undermined me. And I think it's served me because it's allowed me to bridge this talent deficit gap by outworking the person next to me. I've been able to kind of, you know, move my way up in the world. And it's hurt me because it's developed this <clears throat> sense that my self-will can rule the day. And, you know, that's a very damaging egocentric perspective um, on the world that has taken me into some very dark places. You know, it's a, it's a mentality that um, did not serve me in terms of trying to get sober. It just dug me a deeper hole. Uh, and it took me a very long time that the solution to so many of my problems and the way forward is not necessarily to buckle down and outwork the next person, but to relax, release, and surrender. And that was a very difficult lesson for me to learn. It's completely counterintuitive to how I'm wired and how I you know, perceived how I had achieved everything in my life. But my experience is that when I'm in that place of surrender, when I can sublimate my own ego and my own agenda and you know what I'm trying to get out of a situation, and uh, and just allow things to happen and approach uh, situations from a perspective of service. Uh, what what can I give rather than how is this going to serve me or what am I going to get out of it? Um, that perspective has ultimately uh, become almost a secret weapon that has uh, resolved a lot of problems in my life and allowed me to uh, achieve things that I didn't think were possible. And I know it's kind of an, an erudite um, concept to grasp, and it took me a long time to figure it out. But honestly, it's been, you know, that that has been sort of my first and foremost um, biggest teachable moment in my adult life. What's well, interesting, because as I'm sitting here, I'm thinking, man, I like to think that my self will can can manifest whatever I want, and and to me, looking at it, it looks like if I'm looking at your life, it's you know you you know became sober, you quit a job that was unfulfilling, and then you change your diet to to become a vegan and and live a more enriched life. So to me, it looks like your self will still involved, just on a different um, focus. So like, how do you know when it's time to to take a step back and surrender, so to speak? 
Well, that's the ultimate question, right? I mean, it's, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. When you look back, you know, at my life, it seems like all these dominoes have just lined up perfectly. But I can tell you, you know, in the midst of making these changes, it, it, it seemed insane, you know? So when I decided, hey, you know what? Like, I just, I just like riding my bike and I like running on trails and that's what makes me happy. And I'm just going to start doing that. And I don't care, you know, like, I don't care, like what my colleagues think. I don't care if my clients fire me. I don't care if I have to walk away from being a lawyer. Like I need to figure out some way to bring joy back into my life. That's not a logical, rational decision to make. That's not a decision that was embraced by any of my friends. And so I, you know, that, that, that was a surrender. I was like, I surrender because I'm trying so hard to make this law thing work. And the harder I try, the more unhappy I'm getting, I'm letting go. And I'm just going to follow my heart and like trust my instincts, even though it seems to everyone around me, like they're leading me astray into the world of, you know, the most irresponsible human who ever walked planet earth. So, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, when you're in it, it doesn't feel the way that it looks when you're looking at it, you know, from the perspective of years past and, and, you know, through the microscope looking backwards. But in terms of, you know, when to let go and when to use your self-will, I think that that is, you know, something that you refine over time and with experience, you know, surrender doesn't mean giving up. It doesn't mean that you don't work hard. It's just a fundamental appreciation and understanding that there really aren't that many things that you have very much control over. You have control over your reaction to the world, but you don't have control over people, places, or things. And I think a lot of unhappiness and aggression and resentment is driven by uh, a frustration that, you know, that, that, that the world and other people are not aligning in the way that you would like them to. And I know that that caused me a lot yeah. of frustration. And so to get to a point where you can let go of that, where you're, you're focused on what you can control, your behaviors, your actions, but you're at peace with how that's received by the world and whether or not that's going to result in the desired outcome that you seek, I think is a healthier way to kind of, you know, plod your way through life. Yeah. And, and how about you talked about when you make some of those decisions that it's generally unpopular with your colleagues or your co- clients or your friends or whomever. So I want to put a pin in that around, you know, you make a difficult decision and say some of your friends at the time don't support it. What, how has that affected you to either you change the opinion of some of your friends and then they're on board with you or you say, well, screw those guys and gals because if they're not going to support me, then I don't want them in my life. And then you find new people that support you because I have to imagine the circle that you're with now is much different than it was 15 years ago, 10 years ago. Yeah, my circle is definitely very different now. But I think it's a more nuanced you know, approach that I've taken. You know, Just because somebody isn't totally on board with me doesn't mean that they get excised from my life necessarily. It's more about uh, the, the emotional boundary that I, that I erect around myself. So, you know, initially, especially when I was drinking and using, I couldn't trust my instincts. My instincts led me astray. And so for many years throughout early sobriety, I was trained and learned to run my decisions by a panel of other people before making them because until I felt like I had become emotionally mature enough and had developed 
had had sort of um, you know honed the honed the, the the tool sufficiently that I could once again trust my instincts. And then it became a matter of dipping my toe into the world of trusting my instincts and seeing what would happen. And so by the time you know I was making some kind of radical decisions. I had come to a place where I, I really could trust my instincts, and I know that I, I knew that they would would lead me into uh, you know a better place for myself, irrespective of what other people thought. So whether people were you know talking behind my back or telling me directly that I was making a bad decision or that I was crazy, it's it's not about getting rid of those people. It's just okay, well, you can say that, but is that impacting me emotionally or not? Like I can hear that and not have it really um, upset me because I've created an emotional boundary around myself where I feel good about the decision that I'm making. So it doesn't matter what those other people are saying. Now, that being said, I do think it is important to have uh, you know a community of people around you, a board of advisors who are supportive and who also will tell you the straight truth and give you constructive feedback on your path. Uh, I think everybody needs that. Um, and I have people like that, you know, for all different categories of my life. What it sounds like it's getting down to how do you learn how to trust yourself and to do that, you have to know what you actually want. And a lot of folks nowadays make it super complicated, but I think what you said just brings some clarity to it, right? You, you found out what you like to do. You like to ride your bike and you like to run on trails. Um, but in order to get to that place of knowing what you actually want, you have to, you know, like I said, know yourself more. So what was the key for you? Was it journaling a lot? Was it meditation? Was it just taking a step back from, you know, the, the seven to seven grind and then you're you're getting home and you're on the phone, then you're, you have no time for yourself. So how do you get to know yourself to know what you actually want? Well, yeah, I mean, getting to know yourself is everything. You know, the truth of the matter is, most people don't know who they are or what they want. And that's just the straight facts. You know, mm-hmm. at 51 years old and the, the experience that I've had, I can tell you that most people are walking around in a waking dream. They don't know who they are. They don't know what they want. And they're just reacting impulsively to the world around them. We are so habituated to the social constructs in which we live our lives that we rarely question the parameters that, you know, kind of guide us throughout the day. And for me, I had to have my entire life pulled out from underneath me and taken away in order for me to develop any awareness whatsoever um, about, you know, who I was, what I wanted, what made me tick and, and the like. And it's been a very painful, long journey, and it will continue until the day that I die. And now I look back on, you know, some of the worst experiences I wouldn't wish on, on my worst enemy as, as the most formative, beautiful experiences for which I'm very grateful because they've, they've put me in a place of, of reflection that have allowed me to connect with myself in a really profound way where, where I do know who I am. And so I think the path towards that, you know, ultimately, you know, if you're, if you're having a, a, you know, a crisis, that, that painful moment is a great opportunity for you to self connect. Um, and so if that's something that you're going through professionally, you know, emotionally with respect to a relationship financially, you know, I always tell people to 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 really embrace it as uncomfortable as it is because it's your greatest teacher. Um, but you don't have to be in pain or suffer some you know 
unbelievable consequence in order to better acquaint yourself with yourself. Um, you know, I think that there are, uh, uh, you know, all kinds of tools for that these days, but the biggest, most powerful, most potent one, um, is meditation. You know, mm-hmm. you've got to, you know, if you want to rise up, you got to lie down. And, uh, I think meditation is, is really the, the most powerful tool, um, to develop that connection. And there's all kinds of tools beyond that. I mean, look, the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, although it's reserved for, you know, people with addictions are quite profound. And those tools have been fundamental in connecting me with myself. Um, You know, morning journaling is important. Uh, I highly suggest The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. It's an amazing book and program that will help you connect with your inner creative voice and, and, you know, connect yourself with, with, you know, your higher consciousness. Um, and I think developing some kind of faith, some, some sense that there is, you know, a force greater than yourself that resides outside of yourself, I think is, is really important in terms of developing humility, um, and a sense of, of a sense of purpose in your life. When I think, <clears throat> You mentioned earlier the folks who have had that crisis, you know, they can change. I think they're the, they're the ones who have it easy, right? Because the folks who have never had that crisis, they may think that everything's okay or it's just kind of a, you know, you're never really high, you're never really low, you're just continuing on your daily monotonous grind. And so maybe the folks who have had that crisis have it lucky. But I think bottom line is that uh, – go ahead. No, you're absolutely right about that. Well, I just think – you know, from there, it's, okay, how do we develop some awareness? And it's journaling, it's meditation. And you wrote a ton of content on how you meditate. And so we won't go into that. And I'll, we'll post a link to that article in the show notes. But just before we move on from this, when you're meditating, are you also visualizing? Because we know the power of visualization, but I'm grappling with, when am I going to visualize? Is it during the meditation? Do I just let my mind be completely empty during the meditation? So this is a selfish question. I wonder about you here. Visualization and meditation are two different skills or two different, um, um, uh, you know, programs. Meditation is all about trying to, you know, clear the mind to try to eradicate, you know, any thought from the mind so that you can be fully immersed in the present. It's a very difficult thing to do. There's a million different techniques, um, but fundamentally, they're all driving towards this same goal, which is conscious presence and understanding the distinction between the chatter of the thinking brain and the present, you know, higher consciousness that also resides within ourselves. Visualization, I think, is very important and it's very powerful. It's just a different thing. Do you do them at the same time or it sounds like not, but when do you do each? No, I, I do them. Yeah. Meditation is not visualization. If you're, if you're visualizing when you're meditating, then you're lost in thought and right. you're, you're not, you're not present. You know, the idea with meditation is to constantly try to anchor yourself in the present, in the moment. And when a thought occurs to brush it aside and bring yourself back to the present and bring yourself back to the present. Visualization is, is something that I would do. Like I could do that you know, when I'm running or when I'm riding my bike or, you know, during, you know, a purposeful morning journaling exercise, like all, you know, those things are are more appropriate for 
the rumination that comes with with visualization or the, the sense of anchoring yourself in a result, which I think can, you know, uh, empower neural pathways that can help you uh, help you with your success equation. But they're just different from meditation. No, it makes sense. Okay. It's, it's kind of relief, relief to hear that because, you know, when you're meditating and thinking of what you want, it's kind of stressful, but then, you know, it's like, when do I have the time to, to visualize? So had to ask just for my own selfish, uh, selfish uh, needs there. Um, and I think one of the main points of this interview is to show folks and the listeners, Hey, you can change, right? There, there are areas of your life that you can change, whether it's your diet, whether it's your mentality, whether it's your job, um, and it doesn't need to go from something like you, where you went from, you know, being overweight when you're 39 to running, you know, the Ultraman or the, or the Epic Five, right? I mean, some incredible things, which I, I hope we talk about today. But um, any any advice just for the folks listening who are overweight, they've maybe never worked out in their life, like maybe just a one small first step to get them on the, on the positive route there? Of course. Well, first of all, uh, you know, people say people don't change and, and that's bullshit. Mm. People change all the time. Uh, I've changed my life so dramatically that my former life preach resemble anything like how I live today. And I've had the great, you know, experience of working with so many people who have changed in such dramatic and beautiful ways. So the idea that you can't change is nonsense. So dismiss that from your consciousness immediately. Uh, And I think that the next step, or at least, you know, the the kind of first thing or the most powerful kind of nugget I would like to leave people with is that, you know, embarking on this journey of changing your life uh, is not an overnight thing. And it's not sort of a, a sexy before and after picture. It's not about some big dramatic, uh, new, you know, new year's resolution, it's not about like a starvation diet or like suddenly going on some crazy, you know, training protocol. It's about the tiny little actions that you take every single day, mm-hmm. microscopic little actions that shift your trajectory, you know, in just the slightest amount that over, you know, the course of a year will deposit you in an entirely, you know, different and new place. So with that being said, I think, you know, the, the, the mantra that I like to leave people with is mood follows action. You know, people say they don't have time or they can't change or, you know, they don't feel like doing something. You've got to learn how to turn off the idle chatter of the thinking brain that's trying to talk you out of whatever is in your best interest and learn how to be present and just act. And this is where meditation comes in. When you understand that that chatter of your thinking brain is just uh, a signal that you need not pay attention to, it puts you in a very powerful position to take greater control over your actions. And ultimately, it's your actions that change your life. It's not how you feel about your actions. And when you can learn to take actions despite how you feel about them or feelings that make you feel like you're going to die, even though you're not going to, uh, that is what is going to change your life. It doesn't matter how you feel about the action. It only matters that you take it. And once you take it, that will shift your mood. But if you sit around waiting until you feel like doing something, you will be sitting in that chair waiting until the day that you die. And that that's powerful, man. And I think, you know, something I, I, 
couldn't tell you who I could attribute this quote to, but you know, oftentimes people get stuck in their traps because they're tracks because they're um, comparing their you know middle of the movie to someone's uh, you know final scene, right? They look at you and where you are, and they think that all of a sudden you just lost fifty pounds and became you know one of the twenty five most fittest men in the world. But in reality, that took you know a dozen years from <laughs> from when that happened to where we stand today. So I think that's that's very encouraging. And you know, we want to just take a quick pivot here to a few um, rapid fire questions before we wrap this up that we source from the audience. Um, and <clears throat> you know, one that I'd be very curious to know about from you, Rich, is you've accomplished so much in your life. What is the thing or a few of the things that you're the most proud of? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think the thing that I'm, that I'm most proud of is that I was able to heal myself. Um, it's not about like accomplishing, uh, you know, these crazy endurance feats or the books that I've written or how many downloads the podcast at has. Those are all outward manifestations of this inner journey that I've been on to, you know, basically be the best version of myself, which I'm still very far from. But, you know, when I reflect back on on what my life was like when I was 30 and 31 years old, uh, and then the struggles that I had to endure to you know, repair my life and then change my life dramatically in my 40s, it's been it's been very, very difficult. And every step along that path has been my teacher and has made me a better, more fully integrated human. And so now at 51 years old, um, you know, I can say that I have healed so much of my emotional wounding uh, that hamstrung me for the greater part of my life. And that allows me to be a better servant. It allows me to be a better husband and a better father to my kids. Uh, And ultimately that's the most gratifying thing to be able to be in a place now where I have some experience that I can pass on, not just to my children, but to the audience that I have through the podcast and through the people that read my books um, so that I can hopefully spare them some of the pain (laughs) that I experienced uh, in the betterment of their own lives. Spared away, baby. And for you folks listening, please check out Rich's podcast. Like I said, he has some incredible guests on there and and we listen to it all the time. Uh, one for me, Rich, is you just completed, or I guess this, this fall, you completed a race called the Otillo. Um, am I pronouncing that correctly? Uh, if you're American, I think that sounds right. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I always butcher the pronunciation, but I believe the Swedish pronounce it something along the lines of "Ötele," which means island to island. <laughs> Beautiful. And so, could you, you you said on record that that's the hardest thing you've ever done, which is hard for me to believe because you did the Epic Five, which I believe is a um, Ironman style triathlon you know, five days in a row or something crazy like that. So why was that the hardest you've ever done? And maybe could you speak to that just real quick? Yeah, sure. Well, Otolo was the, I think I said it was the hardest one day thing that I've ever done. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. So I did, I did. Yeah, I did. In 2010, I did something called Epic Five where a buddy and I did five Ironmans on five Hawaiian islands and we did it in under a week. And then I've specialized in Called Ultraman, which is a double Ironman, 320 mile, three day triathlon that circumnavigates the Big Island of Hawaii. So I do like these really long things. 
and you know, the last uh, time that I'd raced was 2011 Ultraman. Uh, and then after that, it was all about like, how do I create some kind of sustainable business out of this message that I'm trying to you know, communicate to the world? And I spent many years trying to crack the code on that so that I could support my family doing what I love. And I was finally able to figure that out. Like I said, it took a long time, but it was stabilized. And I turned 50 and I thought it's time for me to go back and compete because I hadn't competed in several years. And I felt like... Um, Turning 50 was a was kind of a milestone, much like turning 40. And I was interested in what I could do physically because prior to that, it's like, well, you know, I, I don't have anything to prove. Like, does it really matter how fast I can ride my bike anymore? Like, I'm trying to help people. What's the best use of my time and my energy to do that? But I realized, like, this is part of who I am and this is what I love and this is how I express myself. And so I trained for that Otillo race for about a year. It was this past September and it was incredibly difficult. Uh, it's, it's this race that takes place, uh, out in the Stockholm archipelago in the Baltic sea, about a two hour ferry ride from Stockholm. Um, and over the course of one day, you swim and run across 26 islands, 52 transitions between swimming and running. It's about 75 kilometers, 40 miles of running, about six miles of swimming all told. You do the whole thing in a wetsuit with your running shoes on. So you're swimming with your running shoes on. It's bananas. It's called Swim Run. It's the World Championships, something called Swim Run. And I trained really hard for it. I thought I was good to go. And then the the conditions and the terrain just put a beating on me. I mean, we woke up the morning of the race. There was sideways rain. And the, the swells in the Baltic were crazy. I mean, some of the passes that we were swimming across had like six-foot swells, like just Jesus. And the water's freezing and it was raining all day. Like, and you, you know, I was wearing the wrong kind of shoes and they were slipping on these rocks and I was falling down all the time. And it was just, it was hard, man. It was really hard, but it was, a, it was beautiful. Like I, you know, I, at one point I was in the, like the hardest swim, it's called the pig swim is about halfway into this race that took us about 10 and a half hours to do. And the swells were so crazy. I'm just in this washing machine getting thrown all over the place about a kilometer and a half um, channel. And I just started laughing. Like, I was like, what am I even doing here? Like, <laughs> like, I don't need to do this, you know? And I just thought, what, you know, this, what are the circumstances in my life that conspired to put me in the middle of the Baltic sea, like in freezing water, uh, you know, out here, it was just, and it just made me reflect on like, what a crazy journey it's been. And, and, you know, I wouldn't change a thing. It was an amazing experience. And, and, uh, and, um, and it was, and it was great to be able to go out and, you know, crush it at 51. We do this, this race. One thing I, I didn't mention is that you do it in teams of two in yeah. 10. And I did it with my coach and I held him back the whole day. Like I wasn't having a great day. He would have been hours ahead of me, but that aside, like we were still the fastest U S team, you know, this is, you know, we, there weren't that many U S teams there. Like, but it was cool to be 51 years old and still be able to like, you know, compete at a pretty high level and mix it up with people that are, you know, 20 years younger than me. That's amazing. And yeah. it's it's just a testament to some of the crazy stuff you've done and we'll allude to that more on the on the intro. But uh, we got one more question each from the audience and we'll let you go, Rich. We'll keep these quick. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, so so one for me is 
again, not to to overplug your podcast. I don't know if that's possible, but you've had some great guests recently. You know, one I've been borderline obsessed with was Lance Armstrong, and you had Tim Ferriss on recently. And you know, one thing that I really admire about your podcast is that they they seem to be very in depth conversations where you're getting you're getting vulnerable. The uh, guest is getting vulnerable. Similar to you know why I admire someone like James Altucher's writing is that you you kind of dig into that emotion. So I'd be curious on you know your thought process when you meet someone new or you have those types of conversations to uncover things that aren't really public and and things that you know not everyone already knows and, and trying to add value to the audience that way. Yeah, I mean, well, thank you for saying that and and for noticing that. I mean, for me, that that's always the the priority when I go into these interviews, you know, my my biggest um, goal, if you could call it that, is to emotionally connect with the guest. And if I can do that, I trust that whatever information needs to get imparted will be imparted. But the information always comes second. Like I'm trying to find a way in where I can make that person feel comfortable, um, so that we can get real, you know, and, and that doesn't mean that I always achieve that. You know, sometimes I don't. And, and, and sometimes I have guests on where it's not really about that, but, um, ultimately I'm always trying to, you know, to get to the heart of what makes somebody tick. And in the case of someone like Tim Ferriss, he's done a billion interviews. You can hear him on a million podcasts. So, you know, what am I going to bring to, you know, that, you know, the pantheon of all of his conversations that hasn't already been said before? Well, the one thing I could do is try to go to some places that maybe he hasn't gone before. In order to do that, you know, I've got to create an environment in which he feels comfortable. He has to be ready, willing, and able. And I think at this point, like people kind of know, like that's what my show's about. So they go into it with that understanding on some level. Um, but you know, for me, that's, that's the, that's really the thing I'm most interested in. Um, and like I said, I don't always achieve it, but when I do, it's incredibly meaningful and, and, and it's powerful for me. Like I feel indelibly connected to that person, you know, for the rest of my life. And I feel like they walk away from that knowing that that was something that they won't forget either. And and that's a really cool thing. That's amazing. And <laughs> As hosts of our own podcast, we're always struggling with, hey, do we get their story out there or do we go into some new content? Um, so it, it's a constant battle and that that's super valuable we just mentioned. Last question, then we'll let you go here, Rich, is, yeah, I'm personally just interested in this. So this isn't even from the audience. This is my own my own uh, question. And that's, you know, you're a you know, New York Times bestselling author or, or bestselling author on, on several publications, you know, Finding Ultra, you have the second edition coming out this March. What's your writing routine routine like? You know, when do you start? Do you have coffee? How long do you go? Give us the, the rundown on that. Oh, man, you just, uh, you just you're, you're hitting me where it hurts today because <laughs> I'm struggling with this. I've been really struggling in all honesty. Uh, when I wrote Finding Ultra the first time around, which I wrote throughout 2011, um, my life was a lot simpler than it is now. And it was a lot easier to carve out time because I didn't have anything going on. <laughs> no one was calling me. Uh, and now life is a lot more exciting and complicated and interesting. Um, and so it becomes more and more difficult to find that quiet 
time to prioritize the writing. Um, and it's easier to like agree to go do a speaking engagement or something that sounds cool or whatever. Um, but ultimately, you know, these can become distractions also from the main thing that I do, which is writing. So, you know, the way that I have to do it is I have to, it has to come first, which means I, I'm a morning person. So I'll do it first thing in the morning. I wake up, um, you know, what, have what a, time do you wake up? I mean, it, it depends. Like I need seven or eight hours and, you know, I try to be in bed like between nine and 10 every night, but it doesn't always happen. Um, but because I'm self-employed, you know, my wife and I trade off and taking our kids to school and stuff like that. So it just depends on what's happening on that specific day. It can, but usually between, you know, five and seven, you know, usually, and unless I'm like obsessed and then I'm getting up at like four 30 and I go through like periods where I do that. Um, but ultimately that's not like a totally sustainable situation, but either way, like I go right to the page and I have to, I try to get like an hour or two done first thing. Um, and then I can go do, I go work out, I go train, um, then I can, you know, deal with emails and all that kind of stuff. And then it's back to the page later on, um, in the day. It's amazing that you can go to email and go back to writing, um, because it seems to me like something where if you read, uh, do you know Stephen Pressfield's War of Art? Have you of read course. that? Yeah. It's amazing. Um, or, you know, we, we've listened to James Altucher on Tim Ferriss talk about his routine, but it seems like once you've given the writing three to four hours, you're done for the day. Whereas you can go back to it, which is really impressive. Um, well, not, every, not every day. Like it just depends. Like, like I'll do, I have my most creative time in the morning and yeah. then in the afternoon I can do less creative aspects of writing. Like I can, I can like do some editing or, you know, go back and read something I wrote earlier that day. Yep. But yeah, three or four hours a day and you're, you're maxed out. You're done. You're shot. Well, that, that's what I wanted to know. And this has been a really exciting and refreshing podcast for us. A lot of the things you talked about uh, really hit home with us. So thank you for your time. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll wrap this up before we do uh, any last words to the audience and where can they find you on social media? Where can they find your book? Um, great. So yeah, I'm easy to find on social media at rich roll on Twitter and on Instagram, um, youtube.com forward slash rich roll, the rich roll podcast on iTunes. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm everywhere on Facebook, all those places easy to find. Uh, finding ultra is my memoir. Also have uh, a cookbook called the plant power way plant-based, uh, lifestyle primer and, uh, recipe guide which you guys can check out and i have i've got all you know i've got all kinds of other stuff meal planner on my website richroll.com is kind of the main place to find out everything that i'm doing guys check him out on the podcast on all the social sites the books his videos you you'll take a look at the guy you won't believe that he's you know 50 you barely believe that he's 25 when you take a look at him so 52 now right yeah 52 uh, now 51 now, 52 in October. Okay. All right. Well, uh, Rich, again, we, we really appreciate the time. This was great. And, uh, for the listeners, we'll be back with another episode coming to you next week. Thanks guys. Appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to that episode of TR talk with Rich Roll. Please check out his book, Born Ultra. And if you want to support the podcast, three things for you. Go ahead and keep on listening. We always appreciate that. If you feel so inclined, leave us a review on iTunes, subscribe, and post us out to the interwebs via social platforms. Thank you again. We'll be back next week with a new episode.
Peace.